Hello, I'm Voice Print volunteer R.J. Gilbert, and with me today is Donna Kakonke. And join us now for Behind the Wheel, Voice Print's program for the auto enthusiast. We begin today with an article titled, Jay Leno's Two-Wheeled Passion. It's by Mark Gardner from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. Burbank, California. When I arrived at Jay Leno's garage, the door was open and there was a 1931 Henderson 4 parked in a pool of sunlight. This was a great bike, Leno said. It was powerful and smooth and had automobile quality electrics and reliability. Then he asked, have you ever ridden one of these? When I said no, he said, then let's go. I'll get my other one. He disappeared into an adjacent building while one of his mechanics reminded me that I'd have to work the clutch with my left foot and shift gears with my left hand. To make matters worse, there were two shift levers on the left side of the fuel tank, and I mustn't touch the outer one as it operated the bike in reverse for use with a sidecar. I envisaged nudging the wrong lever by accident, locking up the rear wheel and spending the rest of my life trolling eBay for used Henderson parts. Leno started both bikes and led me out onto the streets of Burbank. After giving me about ten blocks of getting used to the utterly alien controls of the oldest motorcycle I'd ever ridden, he led me on to Interstate 5, the busiest freeway in Southern California. Living down here, I see lots of celebs who wear their custom hogs and Ducatis like designer clothing. By that I mean they use what's given to them for promotional purposes preferably at some red carpet gala while paparazzi flashes pop. That's not Jay Leno. He's a little bit embarrassed by the Hollywood star cult's free food for millionaires ethos and aware of the irony in the fact that, at a stage in his career when he can afford anything he wants, manufacturers of new bikes often give him machines. He's been a lifelong motorcycle enthusiast. His garage, actually a 17,000-square-foot restoration shop with five full-time employees and four nearby storage buildings totaling nearly 100,000 square feet, is home to about 100 motorcycles, as well as his better-known collection of automobiles. Almost all of them are licensed and insured and at least occasionally taken out on the roads. Once we were safely back in the garage after only one embarrassing stall... Leno told me the bike I was riding still had its original brake shoes. I'll bet if you gave the average modern rider a bike like this, with almost no brakes and terrible handling, he said, they'd actually have fewer crashes because they'd have to think so far ahead. As a kid growing up in Andover, Massachusetts, most of the high-performance bikes he saw were in magazines. You know, I was that kid sitting in the back of math class with a copy of Cycle World, he told me. I was in the eighth grade in 1964 when they put out an issue with a white and gold Triumph Bonneville on the cover, and I thought it was beautiful. After fantasizing about it for years, his first riding experience was hardly the stuff of dreams. I was about 18, and I bought a used Honda 350, he remembered. I'd never ridden a motorcycle, and the salesman handed me the keys. I was wearing prescription glasses. I had no helmet, and it started to rain as I rode home. A big truck passed me, and in the wind blast, my glasses flew off. 
seeing the humor in his own misadventures always came naturally to him. Even before he was out of college, he got gigs as a stand-up comedian in Playboy clubs. After I graduated, I worked in car dealerships by day and did comedy at night, he told me. I kept the day job money in one pocket and the comedy money in the other one. When there got to be a lot more money in that pocket, I realized I could make a good living in show business. Eventually, he was able to pursue his hobby with passion and money, of course. Sometimes you buy the story as much as the bike, he told me. A few years back, I crashed a Vincent and I was limping around on The Tonight Show and I said, if anyone out there has a Vincent gas tank they want to sell, call me. Sure enough, some old guy calls from Florida and says, I have a gas tank, but you have to buy the whole bike. He gives me the serial number and I call the Vincent Club and they tell me the bike with that number is lost. It was the third black shadow ever made, and it was sold to an American G.I. never seen again. They mentioned the G.I.'s name, and I'm stunned. It's the old guy who called. It turned out he brought the bike home, it broke the bronze idler gear, and he put it aside. Then he got married, had kids, he just never got around to it. The bike was still virtually new. He doesn't baby his bikes. Once he'd been clocked at over 100 miles per hour, 160 kilometers per hour, on his 1924 Bro Superior, an ex-Brooklands race bike that makes the Henderson I-Road look positively modern. Bernard Jukley, the general manager of Leno's Garage, shook his head ruefully as he said, I tell him, Jay, just because it went 100 miles an hour back then doesn't mean it should go 100 miles an hour now. Leno's well-known to local cops, who've cut him plenty of slack, it seems. During his show season, Leno checks in with his mechanics by phone several times a day from his office at NBC. After taping his show in the afternoon, he goes to the garage for an hour or two to recharge his own batteries. He drops one vehicle off and picks up another to use the next day. When he's working, Jay only rides or drives one vehicle a day, so he doesn't break too much, Jukli said. But during the summer, he's here all day, and he'll take out five or six vehicles, so he creates more work for us. Leno recently handed off the Tonight Show to host Conan O'Brien after 17 years at the helm, but his mechanics will get back to their normal work rhythm this fall when he begins taping the new... The Jay Leno Show, which will air at 10 p.m. in most markets from September 14th. Those mechanics tend to be guys who had their own shops specializing in restoration and vintage race preparation. They appreciate recession-proof job security, great bikes and cars, and they only have one customer to keep happy. They also have absolutely everything they need to do their jobs, including CNC milling machines, water jet cutting table with a 15-foot bed, and a 3D printer for parts prototyping. They can make virtually any part for any vehicle in-house. One of the bikes in a service bay was a Y2K jet bike powered by a 320-horsepower Rolls-Royce turbine engine. When I snapped a photo of it, Leno said, Well, actually, that's not mine. It's a loner. The company that made the bike wanted to take his back to modify it, so they lent him the bike that appeared in the movie Torque. 
Although he appreciates the performance capabilities of modern sport bikes, he bemoans the way they're filled with incomprehensible digital gadget. I have this book that was published in the 20s, Leno said, called Projects for Boys. It's full of projects like building your own steam engines and making your own crystal radios. Those were thought of as projects for boys. Nowadays, men can't do that stuff. Although, if you're a Jay Leno, you can. He showed me a contraption, not quite finished, that is part knucklehead Harley, part 1902 Knox steam engine, and I'm not kidding, a heat exchanger from a Titan nuclear missile. The Air Force sold that to me, he said, adding wryly. I guess I built that to gain entrance to the More Money Than Brains Club. Toward the end of the day, Leno wheeled out a 1918 Pope. Riding this thing, he said as he pulled on a helmet, 60 miles an hour feels like 200. I stood there with his mechanics and watched as he kicked the Pope to life and rode out the gate and around the corner. Just then, as we turned back into the garage, there was a loud, metallic crash, and they all froze in place. After a moment... One of Leno's guys jogged out for a better look. It was just a garbage truck, he said with relief, adding, I hate that sound. Jay Leno's Two-Wheeled Passion was the title of that article. It was by Mark Gardner from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. You're listening to Behind the Wheel on Voice Print. This article titled, There's No Business Like Collecting Cars, is by Petrina Gentile from the July 30th edition of the Globe and Mail. David Bedner has a long history in show business, including involvement in the Shaw Festival and Livevent. But for more than a decade, he has been staging another big show in Toronto, the annual Canadian National Exhibition. The CNE, which runs from August 21st to September 7th this year, is one of the oldest and longest-running fairs in the world. It started in 1878. But Bedner, the CNE's general manager, also has an affinity for old cars. The avid car collector has a stable of vehicles, including a 1952 Chevrolet pickup, a 1952 Chevrolet Suburban, a 1962 Buick LeSabre, a 1995 Mazda Miata, which was originally owned by the late June Callwood, a 1988 Chevrolet S10 Blazer, a 1979 Harley-Davidson golf cart, and his daily driver, a 2004 BMW 325 XI Sport Wagon. I don't have a strong conscious memory of this, but apparently the summer I turned two, my brother would sit on the porch and go through car books with me, he says. By the time I was four, I could tell a Maserati from a Jaguar. There's a funny tape recording of me and my father saying, you sure it's not a Jaguar? And me saying, no, no, in a four-year-old voice, that's a Maserati. Bedner's collection started in 1991 with the 1952 Chevy pickup. My wife and I were on a road trip in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I told her that I always wanted to have a Chevy pickup truck from the year that I was born. 
I bought the thing on the spur of the moment and drove it back. I've had the pickup truck the longest, and I'm the fondest of it, says the married father of four children and two stepchildren. My wife has correctly determined what the 52 pickup truck says about me. As she points out, I tend to be nostalgic, and I had a very happy childhood. She thinks that owning a truck from the year of my birth, 1952, somehow speaks to my love of that time, of my life, he says. I often have people ask me if I'll sell it. The others might be for sale someday, but the pickup truck I'll be driving until they take my license away. The pickup truck cost $2,100 in 1991, but he spent nearly $6,000 repairing it. It took me about three years to rebuild the engine, and it's due for a whole round of renovations that I haven't had a chance to get to yet. It's really easy to work on. There's so many things about the hobby that I like. I love the mechanical involvement. I like driving a variety of vehicles, he says. I do have an ambition that my wife doesn't share with me. I'd love to drive my pickup truck to Alaska, says Bedner, who worked on major theater productions such as The Phantom of the Opera, Ragtime, and Showboat during his three-decade run in the arts and entertainment industry. His second purchase, the 1962 Buick LeSabre, also holds a special place in his heart. It's a big honking V8. It'll pass anything but a gas station, he laughs. When I was in high school, the car I learned to drive on was a car like this. I spent three or four years trying to find one. I found one in South Dakota in 2000 and flew out and drove it home. So far, he has invested about $6,500 in it. We took the Buick to Florida once. My wife didn't want to take it. We argued about it. We got as far as Pennsylvania and ran out of gas. It's stupid of me. The gas gauge was working. I don't know what I was thinking, says Bedner, who was born in Dallas. He received his Canadian citizenship at the CNE in 2000. Then came the drop top. I was thinking about getting a convertible, and then I read this article about June Callwood's children getting her a new one to replace the old one. So I just phoned Mazda dealers until I found her car. They only had to change the one light bulb to pass safety. It's got the odd little ding and scratch on it. It's not the perfect car by any means, but it runs like a dream and my wife loves driving it. He even had the privilege of meeting its late owner, June Callwood. I recognized her at a Cirque du Soleil opening. I went up and introduced myself. She smiled, wagged her finger in my face and said, You know, I took good care of that car. But not all purchases were wise ones. The Suburban really looks like hell. It's why you should never buy a car on eBay. It looked good in the photos on eBay, and it was really cheap. I bought it, and it cost me another $1,000 to get it here. And once it arrived, it literally had no floor from the seat to the firewall. There was no floor. To date, he has dumped nearly $10,000 in the Suburban. A word to the wise. If you buy something like this, it better be because you want to own it, because the carrying costs are high. The initial investment can be very low. I bought the Miata and the Blazers thinking they might be some future investment, but you're not going to make money on cars. At least I'm not, he laughs. 
Over the years, Bedner has owned a 1967 Dodge A100 Slant 6 van, a 1968 Volkswagen bus, a 1969 Buick Wildcat, a 1967 Dodge Monaco, an Austin America, a Ford Aerostar, and a 1976 Chevy van that was used during the Montreal Olympics. But there's only one vehicle he regrets parting with. The car I regret selling was the Vega station wagon, a car the kids nicknamed Brown Car. It ran like a piece of crap, it had an aluminum engine, and it didn't have a very comfortable ride, but it was a good-looking little car. If I could bring that one back, I would. You've been listening to There's No Business Like Collecting Cars by Petrina Gentile from the July 30th edition of The Globe and Mail. You're behind the wheel on VoicePrint. I'm your volunteer reader, R.J. Gilbert. And this is a column titled, Electric Car Subsidy, A Dead End. It's by Jim McKenzie from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. Even by the standards of politically skewed decisions, the $10,000 subsidy for electric cars proposed recently by Premier Dalton McGuinty is preposterous. It is just so wrong on so many levels, it's hard to know where to begin. Okay, I'll start with this. All subsidies distort the market, and if you believe that the way to economic progress is Adam Smith's invisible hand, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, it is the worst system ever devised except for all the others, then all subsidies are wrong. I understand that it is within the purview of a government's responsibility to nudge citizens in directions it thinks is good for them. As examples, the government encourages the use of seatbelts and discourages the use of tobacco, not only for the good of the individual, but for the good of us all. Scarce and publicly funded medical services are involved. I also understand the difference between strategy and tactics. You may have a longer-term goal in mind, and tactically you employ a variety of interventions, which, with some luck and forethought, might even be efficient ways to achieve that goal. Well, this one fails on all counts. Let's assume that McGinty's goal is to reduce CO2 emissions on the theory they cause global warming. Well, never mind that last winter's and this summer's weather suggests that if this theory is true, we should all buy huge SUVs and leave them idling 24-7. But you should never etch in granite a subsidy for a specific technology because it works against someone coming up with something that might be even better. It follows, then, that you should never reward a particular piece of hardware. You should instead reward the performance you want and let the ingenuity of private enterprise and the economic discipline of the marketplace decide the most efficient way to deliver the desired performance. If the goal is to reduce burning of fossil fuels, then the most efficient and effective way to do that is raise the price of fossil fuels. I hate to say it, folks, but it's true. Anything else is a waste of time and money. That's what the government would do if it was serious, because it's the only action proven to work. It encourages people to trade in old pollution spewers, to choose more fuel-efficient cars when they do buy, and even to drive less. Oh, and to discourage people from letting their SUVs idle 24-7. But the government is not serious about this issue, because that would mean making a tough decision, and that's something governments just don't do. And another thing, 
How great an impact could a handful of electric cars have on CO2 emissions? Rounded to the nearest thousandth of one percent? About zero. Twenty percent of the Ontario government's fleet by 2020? A drop in the tailing sludge pond. Also, where is the electricity to charge these things going to come from? McGinty is shuttering nuclear options at every turn. We're left with burning coal, natural gas, or oil. Lovely. McGinty's proposed subsidy is wrong on a taxation philosophy basis as well. Rightly or wrongly, PACE, flat taxers, the taxation policy in most of the developed world is what economists call progressive. Those who earn more or have more pay more. Yet McGinty's electric car giveaway puts ten grand of taxpayer money, your money, uh, your I'm lucky I still have a job money, into the Gucci jeans of those who can afford a car whose price tag, while not yet formalized for Canada, will be about $45,000. If that doesn't cause rioting in the streets, I don't know what will. There's also the issue of conflict of interest. This has been the nub of the argument made by Honda and Toyota against this proposal, because their hybrids apparently will not qualify. Only the Chevrolet Volt. Which, surprise, surprise, is made by a company now partially owned by the Ontario government. So McGinty will be taking your money from one of his full pockets and sticking it into another. Now, Honda and Toyota's hands aren't entirely clean here because they don't complain about other government incentives that apply to their hybrids and make no more sense than this one. Those subsidies just aren't as large or quite as egregious. Is there any chance at all that these people will come to their senses? I'm not holding my breath. And not because of all the CO2 in the air either. You've been listening to Electric Car Subsidy, A Dead End. It was by Jim Kenzie from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. This article titled Loading Up Van Can Be Half the Fun of a Journey is by Lorraine Summerfield from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. As we head into the eye of the summer holiday hurricane, thousands will take to the road with springs sagging under the weight of coolers, tents, and truculent teenagers and toddlers. Cargo will be loaded not just to fit, but to be accessible to a parent blindly digging around for diaper wipes, crackers, batteries, and pillows. Our van usually ends up resembling a giant Jenga game, but one wrong thing gets moved and everything tumbles. The poor sod is a master of assembly, but once it's done, we all must whisper. Theoretically, our minivan seats seven. The last time this worked in practice was when the boys were in preschool, because passengers usually like to travel with more than just the clothes on their back. Planning our latest trek to the cottage was going to take some reconfiguring, but I plunged ahead and told both boys they could invite a friend. By the time we'd factored in two cat cages, I knew everyone would be permitted to bring only a toothbrush and three pairs of underwear, which of course is about two pairs too many for teenage boys on holiday. While I hadn't noticed Christopher, 17, experience any struggles with math, he somehow ended up inviting three friends. 
Don't worry, one of the guys will drive, he reassured me somehow. This caused more angst in my gut than the thought of six teenagers, three bedrooms, two cats, and one bathroom. I considered the upside to having an additional car coming along. Perhaps I could even take the laundry back up. Maybe I could buy the groceries on this end rather than praying a grocery store would still be open in Perry Sound when we got there. It would be nice to be able to see out of the back window as we hurtled up Highway 400. In a perfect world, everyone would have a vehicle that would magically morph into what was required at the push of a button. For the week, a year, you head out on a jolly family camping trip, your two-door runabout would stretch out to accommodate all the necessary gear. For days, you commute on your own. It would take up no more space than a scooter. The fact is, most families don't need a massive vehicle unless they're the Partridge family on their way to a gig. In a nearly perfect world, your sister or brother or parent with the minivan would, after checking his or her insurance, kindly offer to switch vehicles with you the week you're away. The problem here is, is that some things must be offered. They can't be requested. Motorcycle helmets, wedding dresses, a sip of your water, a toothbrush, cars go right along in that list. For the same reason realtors know that home buyers purchase houses with gourmet kitchens, we're going to have endless dinners even though we never have before. People often buy a vehicle imagining all the uses they will have for it. Convertibles that go topless twice a year, a towing package for a boat that doesn't exist, 600 horses of power to sit on the gardener. As I head down the backside of the minivan mountain, I look forward to smaller vehicles. Maybe I can hitch a ride with my kids. Lorraine Summerfield appears Saturdays and Wheels and Mondays in Living. You've been listening to Loading Up Van Can Be Half the Fun of a Journey by Lorraine Summerfield from the July 25th edition of the Toronto Star. This has been Behind the Wheel on VoiceBrand. For Donica Conge, I'm volunteer reader R.J. Gilbert. The studio producer for this program was Paula Deneen, and we thank you for listening to VoiceBrand. <laughs>